0: Welcome to the Mere Empowerful Podcast, where we believe in going far by going together. Hello, Meerkats. Welcome to another episode of the Empowerful Podcast. It's good to be with you. On this episode, I sit down with Dave Wharton, who is the founder and CEO of the Tugboat Group, uh, which I'm a member of, and you might be asking, what is the Tugboat Group? Uh... Essentially, it is a membership organization which brings together evergreen entrepreneurs and CEOs across many different industries uh, to help share best practices, unique insights, uh, and basically help us along the evergreen journey, which uh, is essentially businesses that are focused on long-term pace growth uh, as opposed to to like quick capital, quick flip and sale. Um, And Dave has an incredible career that led him to starting this group. Uh, He started working at Healer Packard at the age of 16. And has an incredible entrepreneurial journey from Silicon Valley uh, that led him to starting the Tugboat Institute. Uh, we have a wide-ranging conversation from uh, his time at Kleiner Perkins, which he had the opportunity to have the first uh, outside investment in Amazon before it went public, and he worked. Uh, closely with Jeff Bezos on that, which is a very cool story. Uh, but overall, you will understand the importance of evergreen, evergreen entrepreneurs uh, and businesses and kind of the advantage of prioritizing long-term growth over quick capital and a quick sale. Uh, and we dive into Sun Valley and uh, you know growing a business and, and uh, family time. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Uh, this was recorded in the summer of 2019 in his office in Sun Valley, Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Dave Wharton. Uh, Dave, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Um, We're sitting here in Sun Valley, Idaho, which is your home and also your office for Tugboat, right? That's it. Nice. And how long ago did you move here?
1: Uh, Our family moved here about eight years ago. Okay. And I commuted from the Bay Area for about five or six of those years and finally (laughs) got smart and kind of made the migration up here. Uh, this, we're sitting here in
0: your conference room, and it's blue skies, it's been dumping like crazy the last
1: month, right? I mean. Yeah, Our uh, last two weeks. Last two weeks? I think, I think they've got 98 inches of snow <laughs> in the first two weeks of February. There's only been two months on record of over 100 inches, and we're going to get three more feet this weekend. So we're headed um, record setting absolutely. This weekend. And you're here to ski, and I'm here to ski this
0: weekend. So <laughs> Great, Great call. picture right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I love it. You're in you're in Sun Valley. Uh, what was what was kind of the impetus of, of going from Silicon Valley to Sun Valley? I'm just curious why people
1: make moves and you, you know. know. It, I think it's a pretty common story that I've heard here, which is oh, we were in the Bay Area, feeling like maybe we want to get the kids out of the area just for a while, not permanently. Yeah. And we had purchased a second home up here, and we thought, you know, just bring them up for a year. There's this place called the Community School that's got this wonderful outdoor kind of experience integrated with the education experience. We thought, that'd be wonderful. My, so we got up here. My uh, son, two weeks into the school, said, I'm never going back. And I'm like, that's, that's not the deal, buddy. <laughs> and then my daughter, around Christmas time, same thing. She's like, I'm just really sad that I have to leave this place. She was like, I understand. It's only a one-year thing. She said, and that's fair, but, you know, I wish I could stay. And I talked to my wife and I said, So, what are you thinking? And she said, Well, I'd love to stay, but that's not the deal we cut. You know, it's not fair that you have to commute every single week. And I just kind of reflected on that and said, You know, the weekends are great up here. I like the people. I yeah. like the fact the kids are thriving. My wife's doing well. Let's just give it one more year. And that one more year became one more year, became one more year. Until last fall, we finally said, You know, we'll go ahead and close the Palo Alto office. It yeah. just doesn't make sense anymore. And open this one. And here you are, eight years yeah. later. I love it.
0: I love it. Well, I'm so excited to talk to you today about your past experience with private equity, VC, growing sure. purpose companies, uh, tugboat, all things kind of purpose driven. Um, and your journey through that uh, as an entrepreneur, raising capital and that whole journey um, can be daunting and scary and uh, sure. tempting, especially in this day and age with so much capital. So I'm so excited to get your input into this. Um, and you have you have quite the uh, you have quite the past. You have founded how many companies? Four. Four companies. Drugstore.com. Um, one of them. One yep. of them.
1: And the other three. Good technology. That's right. uh, which is backed by Kleiner and Benchmark, and then Tugboat was one. And yep. then it, maybe it's a little bit of a stretch, but I helped spin a company out that was making industrial CO two lasers and helped build that company when I was twenty four years old. Wow. So wow. It's really. Probably better said co-founded by my older physicist. I was a physicist partner, but I was very instrumental in making that all happen. Yeah, yeah. So at the age of twenty-four, you were involved
0: in getting that off the ground yeah. or getting transitioned out and building that business. Yeah. yeah. Wow. How yeah. did you? How did you, I'm always curious how people got into something like that. Were you at business school and then you found your way, or was it a
1: mentor, or how did you find yourself there? So I worked at Hewitt Packard for four summers in high school and college to kinda of put myself through it. And my third year there I actually helped install a CO two laser on a fabrication line. So I got a little familiar with lasers and I thought yeah. it was pretty neat. <laughs> and then um, I in my senior year of college, I um, went to Berkeley. I actually was a phys I, I was a mechanical engineer, but I actually scored extremely high in my physics classes. So they okay. tried to get me to switch into physics, which I just wasn't sure if physicists got <laughs> jobs after college. Yeah. I wasn't sure they did. So yeah, I yeah, stayed that. <laughs> yeah, what do you do then? What do you do? professor and so i stayed with mechanical engineering but my senior year i actually was helping a company in santa rosa who were using lasers or laser engraved wood and paper and so i got exposed to lasers again and then wow. i went to bain and company and worked there for yep. a couple of years and my uh, most of my classmates were heading back to business school and i kind of felt like i was just really starting to get my hand around how businesses worked yeah and so i was moonlighting on the side for a couple of companies helping them and then one of them was the one i worked at during college and he was like i'm built this amazing technology it's a completely new type of laser approach to lasers he showed it to me and it literally blew my mind I've never seen anything like this and he goes but I need to spin this out start a new company I'm not sure how to do that there's tax issues there's legal issues I like look I can help you navigate all that so I helped him kind of spin it out and raise a little bit of capital I'm like look you're on your way and he goes well, why don't you just come join me and I'm like wow. I, I, I guess and yeah why not six seven people You know, a couple of physicists a couple of machinists yeah. and I got there and they went to light up the laser and the thing exploded. And I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> how much money do I have in the bank? Yeah. Can we do this again? <laughs> so I learned how to bootstrap a company. Wow. And yeah, so yeah. I spent three years with them. That's awesome. Yeah. So then from there, what happened next? Were... Uh, so the company was sold, okay. uh, which is not something I wanted. And that was kind of an imprint on my life also. Mm-hmm. is that I felt like we were just starting to turn the corner. I convinced Honda Motors to start making the lasers for us. A capital uh, interest coming out of Switzerland from a family there. And my partner had an opportunity to make tens of millions of dollars yeah. and he had just started disagreeing on what we were trying to do, and he was getting anxious about the risk we were taking. I was getting more excited about the risk we were taking, yeah, yeah, yeah. not a good combo yeah and so gotta... and he was you know ninety percent of the firm, so he had made the decision to let me go and then uh, soon after sell the company um, and then I was on a flight to washington d c it's these serendipity moments yeah. I see a woman who I knew from high school sitting across the plane, switched seats. We sat down. I was telling her my story. and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I don't even have a job. And I was <laughs> just like, you should go work with my husband. And I said, What's your husband? He goes, venture capital. I'm like, what's venture capital? Because they, you know, they back companies and support them and stuff. And so I said, I'll talk to them. So yeah. I went and met with them and they ended up hiring me. And I spent just under a year working for the founder of that firm. A guy named Wally Holly, a wonderful human being. Okay. And then that transitioned to Stanford Business School. So it was just a temporary kind of thing. And we both agreed, Wally was in kind of retirement years. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I just helped on a couple of projects, learned a little bit about venture capital. And I wasn't planning ever to be a venture capitalist again.
0: Yeah. So then you went to Stanford. Stanford, yep. Daytime, nighttime? Uh, full-time. Full-time? Yeah, for a year and a half. Okay. So the two-year MBA program. Got that out of, out of the way? Yep. And then from there, was that, was then to drugstore.com or was there something in between? So uh,
1: an important part of the story is I just got on campus at Stanford Business School and then I called from John Doerr at Kleiner Perkins. And right. wanted to meet. And yeah. So, and so I thought... Frankly, I thought it was one of the women and uh, it was his assistant. And I thought it was one of my classmates who was actually pulling a joke on me. And I was going to show up <laughs> to Kleiner Perkins and be like, hey, I'm here for my interview with John Doerr. And they'd be like, who are you? And there is no interview. <laughs> so I actually called back Kleiner Perkins' main line. I said, like, I speak to John Doerr's assistant. And she answered. And I said, uh, hi, Dave, War just want to confirm? I'm gonna be... They were confirmed. I thought, yeah, we're, we're confirmed right <laughs> now. Oh, actually, this is happening. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah. amazing. So we showed up, and it was supposed to be like 30 minutes. And John and I sat there for two hours. Wow. And, up, and he goes, you have to work for me. You have to work for me. I said, I don't want to be a venture capitalist, John. Uh, he goes, "Well, come work during the summer at Kleiner Perkins. And you kind of learn how we do things. And I said, I, I'm really interested in that. I said, I'd like to either go work at Cisco or Netscape. Yeah. I thought they were the two most exciting companies at the time. Yeah. size, growing fast. He said, well, if you're thinking that, go to Netscape. I'm on the board. I could introduce you to some neat folks. Wow. And so that led me to working at Netscape that summer. And then I worked for a woman named Roberta Katz, who's one of our advisors at Tugboat now. Okay, yeah. And she's the vice provost at Stanford, but she was the general counsel of Netscape at the time. So one of my projects was helping internationalize uh, the Nescape Navigator, remember the original browser yep. oh, yeah. for Eastern European countries. So that was one of my projects. And the other was to help on the e-commerce server, which wasn't working very well. And <laughs> people weren't focused on it because they were really focused on the web server. Because oh, yeah. that's where all the money was. Yeah, Everybody was work, focused on that. And that's where Microsoft was choosing to compete with them first. So they were very attuned to that. Yeah. And so I got kind of given this project. And then through that, I got to meet some entrepreneurs who wanted the e-commerce server to work. Yeah. And then I started talking about how they thought about things. assembly. suddenly I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to change Everything. Yeah, I mean, this is gonna disrupt, it wasn't the terminology I had at the time, but this is yeah, gonna change definitely. all these industries. So I started mapping out what would happen if you could order online, you could deliver these things. And I started kind of developing a scale about you know, what would the margins be, what would the shipping cost be, what would be the propensity, what's the customer concentration, the supplier concentration, just classic yeah. five, and it just ended up being this kind of giant matrix. Yeah. And I just like, you know what would be really cool? Is the replenishment of drugstore items for men. Razor blades, all this. Cause it's just normal just, stuff. Uh, just, yeah, yeah just, guys eat oh shopping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that kind of led to the idea of drugstore.com, which I started working on in the second year of business school. Um, Strangely enough, John had let his admin go. I tried to just, he said, keep in touch with me. I sent him a couple of emails just saying, hey, John, just wanted to say hello, let like, you know how things are going. Never heard of a reply. And then finally, John was at Stanford giving a presentation to the entire business school. He saw me in the audience and he goes, Dave Wharton he goes, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, you do. <laughs> and my classmates were like, Look what is going on here? So, so they're like, How do you know? <laughs> yeah. So I walked, I said, hey, What's going on, John? He goes, Where have you been? I said, I've been trying to reach you just to give you. He goes, No, you have And I said, Yes, I have. And he's like, I didn't get those messages. And so his new admin didn't know who I was. So she just deleted them. She deleted them. just <laughs> deleting them. And so we ended up sitting down together and we talked again. And he's like, What are you thinking? I said, I'm thinking about starting an online drugstore. And I said, and by the way, yeah. you know, I've kind of been looking at e commerce and stuff like wanted to know about my summer experience. He's yeah. like, this is awesome. And he had just backed Amazon. Amazon went public, was it, I think April of 97. So yeah. right after I was leaving business school, we were yep. talking at this point in the fall of 96. And so he's, and he, he was seeing it. I mean, he, he's oh, like, yeah, this, is, sure. this is gonna be huge. And so he's like, we need this guy. Can I, can I have a copy for my partners? You know, and so he ended up sharing that with the partners and through that discussion, they're like, you have to hire him. Get him in here because yeah. we, this, this is a really interesting. So, anyway, we started talking about it. I was going to do the drugstore thing. He's like, come do this. Hard to say no to John Doerr, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I did. I said, <laughs> and then he goes, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. And he did. And then I'm like, okay, I'll come join you. Yeah, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and the offer was great because we basically said, look, I'll let you incubate drugstore.com here, but it really can't be you. We have to find somebody who can really be the founder of this and, and live this, you know, seven days a week, 24 7. Yeah. You have to help me. I'm getting 50 business plans a week. I need your energy focus on that. I don't want to miss the next eBay. He was very disappointed that Benchmark did that instead of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I said, and, and so we had to find somebody to kind of do that. The guy named Jed Smith did that and did it very well. And so Peter Newberg computer. Yep. Uh, Peter took it over and then okay. moved it up to Seattle. And then um, he said, let's do this for a couple of years and then we'll identify an idea. You want to be an entrepreneur and I'll back you in that. I'll send your board of directors and we'll bring that to life. And so that was the deal. And it being not two years, but three years. And and that was kind of neat because then that last year, I ended up working on the investment in Google. And so I was the lead person negotiating with Larry and Sergey on that, which was a very interesting dynamic. And it took a long time. Um, John said, basically, you you need to just get this done, right? And then I was um, also working on the investment in Blue Nile out of Seattle, which you probably know, Mark Vaden and that group. So two really good things happened in my third year. Yeah, absolutely. And and by that time, you're what? Maybe 30? Probably 32. two, one thirty
0: two. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty fun. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Were you were you ever like in that moment just thinking like, okay, the internet is going to change a ton of things, but just how like did you ever have that kind of out of body experience where you're like looking at it, going, how is
1: this like my life, but it's like, but it is your life, and you're I I had that, that experience every single week. Yeah, <laughs> Now it was it was crazy because like you know I get a text. John and I, um, the genesis of the idea for good technology was that John had a two way Pager. It was a Motorola Waveport Pager. I think it was called Waveport. And I had one, too. A little clamshell, you pop it yeah. open. And so he'd always be texting me, are you up? When We were talking about kids earlier. <laughs> yeah. Four in the morning, are you up? And I'm like, I'd hear it, and I'd pull up. Yes. yes. <laughs> and then I'm up, right? Yeah. He's like, you know, the uh, prime minister of Russia is going to be coming in next week. He's going to be visiting. I need you to do a little bit of background work so that I can be prepared for the conversations with him. And so then I scramble around, call everybody I know at Stanford, Cal, um, yeah, yeah. friends that are in the hedge fund world are doing business. And it's like, just feed me information, feed me information. And then yeah. I kind of prep John on that stuff, wow. you know. And so that would, that would be one week. Another week would be, you know, with John flying down to an old Air Force military base to meet with Martha Stewart to talk about Lily. Buying it, transforming it, bringing in fresh flowers from South America, repositioning there and distributing in the rest of the country. And so just every week was crazy. I mean, my first week on the job was actually the At Home Road Show. If you remember the At Home Company, I'm like, what are we doing this week? And he's like, you're going with me. We're going to go around the country. We're, not, we're going to follow the At Home Road Show, He's on the board of directors. Wow. You know, again, Bezos had just gone public about a yeah. week, two weeks beforehand. And then I started going up to Seattle and meeting with Jeff on a very frequent basis because... As we were pursuing the e-commerce stuff, we kind of identified several sectors we thought would be really attractive that Kleiner could incubate companies in. Yeah. Things like Auto Trader with Cox. Yep. You know, Blue Nile jewelry yep, was on the list. Yeah. We had, uh, some other areas there that didn't work out as well, but we kind of had an idea. And then in, in talking with Jeff at the time, Jeff was only doing books. He was basically doing the bookstore, yep. right? He had books. Yep. He had DVDs and he had CDs. And CDs, yep. And most people thought that was the boundary of what he was going to do. He was just going to be the largest bookstore. And Jeff's like, he kind of looked at this thing, and he's like, we, we, we have a bit of a challenge here. Yeah. Because you're our largest and only outside shareholder. Yeah. you know. Um, you know, as far as an entity, and you're actually, um, I'm not going to talk about where I'm taking this in the future, but you've got some things on here that are going to conflict with things I'm doing. So John George has to make a decision, does you want to continue serving on my board or not, or be in conflict? And of course, John didn't want to be in conflict with Jeff. I mean, Jeff's amazing yeah. right? <laughs> and doing great things. And so, uh, there were a few things we just said, okay, well, if we just weren't, well, he was clear. These were like, like drugstore, that's yours. Yeah. Let's not worry about Which it. They they didn't. They ended up being a third, uh, they bought a third of okay. it and eventually sold to Walgreens. Yeah. yeah oh, it went was, public okay. and sold to Walgreens. Um, so there was kind of just kind of making sure we didn't cross wires on it. And I ended up being the key conduit with Jeff to make sure we weren't doing that, which was really fun. Um an then, incredible experience. Yeah, it was nuts. It was nuts. And then, you know, it was neat because like, um, again, all this stuff think has been written about today, but um, if, and I may not have this perfectly right, but I yeah. believe the fourth line he went into was hardware. So on my list was hardware stores and doing that. And he goes, hmm. <laughs> and, and the reason why he did it, and this is why he's so smart, is he felt that if he could sell hardware on the site, he could sell anything on the site. He had permission to go into any segment. Interesting. And so um, I don't think people understood how smart he was. I mean, they understand it today. But yeah, yeah, at the time, yeah. I don't think at they understand the how smart he was. Like, he was and how books. he tested, you know, what was his customers willing to give him permission to do and stuff. I mean, really remarkable.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah. And so I because I, I knew the hardware thing because one of um, so Beck my wife nanny for Jason Kyler who ended up starting Hulu.com. and at the time he was at Amazon doing the music service he was doing music DVDs um, he was running that piece he was the Jeff, bookstore right yeah he was he was, the, he was the bookstore piece of it and so he left uh, while Beck was nannying for the family and he's like oh I'm working on a secret project and for a year I was you know he was off doing this thing that nobody knew of and then he launched it beta um, and it was Hulu which was which was really funny that's uh, awesome but what's interesting is that hardware piece that he went all the way to the hardest part to test his theory of
1: A to Z. And I, I didn't know that. It's fascinating. Yeah. That's yeah. brilliant. Oh, brilliant. And he knew it because when it starts selling, he's like, I can do anything. I've, I've now got permission. And that was, I mean, to know that so early in the life cycle of business, you know, and purposely test that. The other thing was, I remember being up there visiting Rick Dalzell, who was the CIO that we recruited out of. I say we because John Doerr was very instrumental in this. So I helped recruit him out of Walmart to yeah. become the CEO of, uh, of Amazon. And he was instrumental. I mean, Rick Dalzell was probably. The number one person in the country you could recruit to build infrastructure on warehouses, logistics districts. They're doing it for Walmart with all their stores. So we got Rick and was huge. And I was just visiting Rick because he's a great guy. And he said, you know, Dave, we've come across an idea. And and I said, what's that? And he said, and, and back then, this was confidential, and he said, yeah. um, you know, we have all this compute capacity for the holiday <laughs> season. And large, uh, yeah, because they were running into bandwidth problems, right? And well, yeah. they had to design for the holidays, they yeah. designed basically for a week before Thanksgiving through probably mid January. Yeah. So, compute, storage, bandwidth, everything. everything. So, what's happening the rest of the year? Idle, sitting so, there. Excellent. And, X, and, and capacity. They said, so, you know, we've been uh, actually kind of leasing out warehouse space to third party vendors that we actually saw on our side. He goes, we're thinking about leasing out some of the capacity on our compute. I'm like, how's that work? Yeah. and he goes well, I don't know we'll figure that <laughs> he goes so we'll just go to developers who have light, low expectations like classic Clayton Christensen which is yeah. they need to have low expectations they have to know around Christmas time they're not going to get much commute, compute either right because we're going to be sucking all of it down but we're not going to charge much uh, it probably won't impact them yeah. and then that's how they tested out AWS and then they you know, then they figured out oh, this is real and they had to in the sense, I think, fork some of it to actually have capacity around Christmas for all, all the people on it. But yeah, aren't building then, websites for Christmas. But yeah. again, it was like, you just was testing. Is there something here? Is there a way to leverage my existing assets? Wow. It's That's huge. incredible. It's huge. So you had, I mean, that
0: I love these inside stories because it's like... I mean, it's absolutely fascinating that you were again 30 going through, and you're meeting with Jeff, and you're trying to put all these you know deals together, and keeping some off the table and some are on the table, and yeah, uh, you have this, you have this, you know, and of course partner. you took all of them, right? Yeah, yeah eventually you know, he's, like, he's like A to Z. I'm serious, A to Z. <laughs> yeah, <it's> like, <laughs> you realize Amazon. Well, yeah. That's what he said. You bought BrokeForAll. Yeah. You yes. just
1: assume he yeah. did, right? <laughs> exactly.
0: It's all over. Yeah, he just takes over everything. <laughs> um, and you, so so after that, I'm so fascinated how you went from this. I mean, I mean, it's it was a very. I mean you're making it sound great, but it was also very vicious and, and somewhat um,
1: I mean just hardcore and intense, right? I mean you're, oh, the, you're yeah. It, Kleiner? Yeah. So the hours were really long yeah. but it was a really neat partnership. I mean the Kleiner of today I just don't even understand. You know, all mm. this kind of reworking, redesigning. But back then there was about nine partners. Okay. And there was two associates, a guy named Dan Chu, who's a classmate, I unfortunately passed away, and myself. And that was it. And then admin staff and a couple of finance people. And that, it's kind of like how I think Benchmark feels today. There's not really an associate structure or anything else like that. It was very flat. And that team was unbelievable. And I think when you see a high-performance team at that level, um, I'm not sure I fully appreciate it. I I think I did, right? Because you can see the results coming out of it. Yeah. But the truth is, I've never seen anything like it before or after. I mean, it's just incredible. And. And it didn't didn't mean it wasn't full attention. I mean, there was tremendous tension between Fedo Kochel and John Dor at times. They were very yeah. competitive with each other. But what they did is they improved each other through that kind mm. of competition. There was a guy named Doug McKenzie. Doug, uh, you know, we didn't call I called him the Black Hat because Doug hated every deal, <laughs> and so he just shot everything down. And but he didn't shot it like kill it, but he like he would attack the weak spots of those particular business Mm -hmm. plans and opportunities. And what he did is he forced all the partners to think more clearly about what is really gonna make this company successful. Mm -hmm. And so there was this tension and I think sometimes Perhaps John and others got tired of the tension, but it was the tension that created the greatness, yeah. if that makes sense. And totally. maybe, you know, And maybe it's a little bit with like Ray Dalio talks about in his book Principles. Oh my principles. Gosh. yeah, I was going like, to like, say it sounds yeah. just like that. It's a, it wasn't so mechanical, it wasn't so tracked and scored and everything else. It, yeah. just, it was just the culture, that's just the yeah. way they did it. And so it was unbelievable, it was magic. And that's when I left to go to good technology. It was a few years later I heard that Kevin was leaving, Doug was leaving, Vinod was leaving, Will Hurst was leaving, and Russ Sigelman was leaving. Five of the nine You're partners like, on? quietly leaving. I'm like, what happened? And then uh, Ray Lane comes in, and then Tom Germelak comes in, and suddenly these this isn't the pattern that Kleiner had before. The pattern from Kleiner was they hired associates, not very many, just one or two, and yeah. they matured them into partners. If yeah. they didn't work. They let them go. I mean, there's clear yeah. very few got through. Yeah, but they moved to this kind of more of a rock star established executive model and. I think that's when they kind of cracked to change. Yeah, if I look back, that's that's all I can come up with. I mean, if you know, it'd be much more interesting conversation with John Doerr, right? Kind of his view on this, but at least that was my view from where yeah. I was sitting. Yeah, um, fascinating. Yeah,
0: so you go from kind of that that whole world of, I mean, startup to tech. To not necessarily the opposite end, but but today Tugboat Evergreen Institute is is very different than it's pretty orthogonal, is not yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So, how, like, what, like how did you get from there to here? I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I know a little bit, but for people tuning in, it's it's um maybe first let's talk about what Tugboat is, and then how you got to it. Okay, that's
1: fair. Yeah. So um so what Tugboat is today is probably important to say. It's really around Tugboat Institute, and it's a and it's a commitment to help Evergreen entrepreneurs, and leaders build great evergreen companies. So what the hell does that mean? Yeah, what is, an Ever- what is an evergreen? Are they building trees? Like what's <laughs> right, going exactly. on today? Are these green? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so the core framework which we use to define an evergreen company is the evergreen 7Ps. And I was actually developed in partnership with a number of CEOs very early in this. I did a lot of research and collaboration with the group of CEOs and thought leaders to kind of like kind of tease out the essence of this. And what I was seeing is through these interviews, I was meeting people and I'd been, I was actively looking for it. And I'll explain later why I did yeah. this people who wanted to build a meaningful company that would make a difference in the world but they had no interest in going public or no interest in being sold and they view this as being their legacy like i'm willing to commit my entire life to this one company yeah. and this one purpose and that purpose in all cases was not to make money for themselves it was something deeper it was that relationship they want to have with their employee base Or a view they had on the market they felt they could kind of change the market in a favorable way for consumers. And often both, right? Um, And then so as I got to know these people, I started hearing these themes. And that led to the evergreen seven Ps. And so the first three Ps are really around the character of the owners and the management team. And hopefully the entire company. But it has to sit at that level first. And that is being purpose-driven with a purpose more than just making money, but something a deeper north star than that. Yeah. The second is perseverance, which is if you're going to be around for a hundred years, <laughs> you're going to go through many recessions, many depressions, and you just have to design yourself for resiliency. And that might mean keeping your debt low. That might mean, you know, having your team conditioned that when we go into recessions, they're times of opportunities, not times of uh, layoffs and, and withdrawal. Um, the third is people first, and it's just that principle. Herb Keller talked about this. Others talk about which is. If you put your people first, they'll take care of your customers. They'll take care of your suppliers. They'll take care of um, your owners. They'll take care of their communities, and really importantly, you know, they take care of our families, right? Yeah. You know, and so that idea that you know, really put people first—they're not line items on spreadsheets. They're human beings. They're significant contributors, and you want them to be your partners in your company for decades. Sure. Yeah, very off with the Silicon Valley yeah. views. Yeah. So we we'll back <laughs> to that. And the next four P's are on the implementation of the evergreen strategy, which is a commitment to stay private forever and use that as a competitive advantage, not a weakness, but a competitive advantage. Um, to grow from your own profits, not be shy about profitability, be very proud of it. I mean, high profitability is a reflection of customer value delivered. Yeah, absolutely. If if customers will pay you more than your cost of delivery, and they'll pay you a lot more than your cost of delivery, you're probably doing something pretty good. Yeah, (laughs) you're probably serving Um, your customers very well. Right. And then use those profits to reward your employees, to invest in in innovation and growth and, and take care of your owners too. And then the last two is paced growth and pragmatic innovation. The idea that you know, grow at a pace which you don't outstrip your financial resources, back to the profit, mm-hmm. um, and you don't outstrip your culture. And yeah. in many cases, the culture's the bigger deal than the cash, particularly when you get over $100 million, but really important. And don't grow so slow that you really you know, have the, uh, you know, you, you lose opportunities for people. You stultify the organization. So there's kind of this bounded range. Jim Collins does a wonderful job talking about in his book, you know, kind of that importance of pace growth. But if you grow 15% a year for 30 years, You'll build a very big company. Very it's a power of compounding. You yeah. don't have to grow 100 percent a year for four years to be a success. That's, you know, yeah. those are the rocket shots coming out of Silicon Valley. There's yeah. another path, you know, and that's the base growth path. And then lastly, pragmatic innovation, which is back to this hundred-year time frame. Which is whatever you're doing today, a hundred years from now, it will be different. Yes. You know, I don't know. You know. Hundred years ago, what was somebody doing? What was Radio Flyer, one of our members, yeah. doing a hundred years ago? There was no e-commerce sites, yeah. there was no Walmart, there wasn't you weren't building product out of China, you know, not yeah. you designing in collaboration with your customers, you weren't doing mass customization. That's all stuff they're doing today. Yeah. So you just have to have this orientation that, and it can't just sit, you know, in the executive suite. It's got to sit through the entire organization. So everything from Kaizen to lean you know, on the Japanese principles of yeah. continuous improvement and waste reduction to like People who are here are willing to take the risk of leading a new initiative in the firm. They're willing to try a new geography, new product line, and if it works, great. If it fails, it fails. Right yeah. I mean, back to Jeff Bezos. You know, yeah, you got to have that orientation. Right. So anyway, that's the seven Ps, and we kind of put that out as a straw man. Said, "Look, what do you guys think?" And people are like, yeah, "That's pretty good." Yeah. I like that. And so it's kind of that was 2013. Yeah. You know, and they still, you know. I, I still think they stand quite strong. Yeah,
0: know? I mean, it's, it's an incredible group of, of folks. Um, yeah, it's great, a, great, and not just a, an incredible group and just, hey, here's who's part of it, but really deep, meaningful relationships. Yeah,
1: so that's really important. So that's what an evergreen company is. And so, what does it talk about instituting? We're just bringing those people together. You know, mm-hmm. and so we have a, a process by which, and it's mostly by word of mouth, is that people are introduced to other people. Taste so- growth. That's actually, yeah, yeah, we, we, we taste too. Um, hopefully we will be profitable someday. Yeah. Because <laughs> everybody knows, we're working on that. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right, it takes time. Um, yeah, it does take time, <laughs> and uh, you know, we believe in what we're doing. Um, but the idea is, is if we can bring these folks together, create an environment where there's trust, there's authenticity, and they'll open up and share their wisdom and share their knowledge with others, that that'll be shared back, yeah. you know, and then our general belief is, you know, we have about 125 members today, is that almost any problem you need solved or any challenge you're facing, there's probably wisdom within our current group, and it's not venture wisdom or private equity wisdom or public company. It's evergreen wisdom. Yeah. So they're actually have solved problems with the same orientation that you have. So you're not playing the wrong playbook, right? Totally. I think that's one of the hard things for a lot of evergreen CEOs is that, particularly like in places like Silicon Valley in New York, is they go talk to their buddies or venture backed, and it's like are we talking two different languages because totally. the things you're saying I would never do to my employees I mean yeah. I, I can't yeah. I mean it's like it's my fiber it's like oh come on dude you know yeah yeah you, you get, or they go like, oh, don't worry about making money just keep just keep spending it's it like, you know, we'll get more investors to in yeah. more yeah. know, we'll just keep running you know, we won't, as we'll long just long raise as keep, more money yeah, like just keep <laughs> the plane from crashing right <laughs> yeah. and, and instead of like, like building a plane that actually can fly itself wouldn't totally. that be cool yeah yeah, yeah. yeah exactly so, yeah. well yeah. I, can,
0: I can speak firsthand to it because I know um, Chris who started Spikeball yeah. we met three or four years ago at some and um just hit it off had a beer at the bar and and had um just i mean he has an incredible story and the other he's day, an man, initiator oh man he's that guy i mean his community that he's built with his brand is unbelievable it's awesome um, he reached out and he's like hey you know my my uh, finance guy's got a question i know you have a new cfo can you can we connect them and, and chat about this this issue and and i connected with our cfo and they're off
1: chatting about that's Awesome. Some problem they're solving, yeah. and uh, yeah, and that's something we love about what's happening because you know we do the two major events a year. Right? We do the summer summit in Sun Valley, and then we do an exemplar. We go visit in an exemplar, and that creates an opportunity for people to meet and connect and share. So there's kind of the formal sharing, the stuff that's being presented, but there's all that stuff that's happening kind yeah. of you know, over lunch, over dinner in the hall at a bar, you know, oh, like totally, that kind of thing, which is. Awesome! Yeah, oh, I love hearing those stories. Yeah, because more and more of that's happening, where people just reaching out to each other and helping each other. Oh, it's yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Well, Jim Milgard, you know, he's in
0: Seattle Sun Valley all the time. You know, and uh, with, we've, amazing. Yeah, it's 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 been such it's such a relief to to meet up with folks who are like minded and like you said, oriented in the same direction. Because oftentimes when you're facing a growth problem or a or a people problem. And you're right, you go to somebody who is not in that same orientation, and it's like, oh yeah, we'll just you know let go of this staff, or change this policy, or actually you don't have to do that, because technically, here, here, and here, you can do that. Right. Legally, so, this is, you know, what yeah, it, legally it's it's like, is, I
1: don't care about legal, yeah, yeah. it's moral, it's relationship-related. Yeah, you're exactly right, and, you know, and it's just playbooks, right? Yeah. And <clears throat> the one thing I'd say is is that I think the venture industry, some people say, they say well, you know, as a venture, should you just, you know, turn? no, no, I mean... There are companies that would not exist today without totally. the support of the venture industry. Yeah. There are industries and there's certain businesses that require tremendous amounts of capital before they can ever get to customer one. Exactly. That's hard to do bootstrapping, Yeah, right? that's really hard. Yeah, <laughs> very yeah. hard. And so, you know, I think there's always a role for venture capital. The problem is, is that playbook is now being applied everywhere. Mm. And it kind of goes back to the original experience I had with John Doerr. Uh, Netscape was the first get big fast project I know of. And the idea was, we're going to get, this is going to be a big market. Let's get big fast. We'll raise a bunch of capital. We'll hire a bunch of executives. We'll staff this thing really rapidly. We'll secure market leadership, and they'll be worth billions of dollars. Yeah. The company went public with no profitability. Wow. That was unheard of. I yeah. mean, up until that time, the classic thing an investment banker would tell you is you eight quarters of profitability and profitable growth and predictability to eight more quarters of profitability. And so when Netscape went out, I mean, a lot of people were like, it won't get public. Yeah. I mean, it can't. Yeah, it's definitely. breaking all the rules. Yeah, it got public ended up being a couple billion dollars. Wow. You know, Connor Perkins suddenly was sitting on a four hundred million dollar gain, five hundred million dollar gain that day. Over, yeah, overnight. Wow. That's five x. I think the biggest thing they had to date. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, so then John's like, you know, with the e commerce, with the internet, let's go do this over and over again. And he was a phenomenal evangelist. On wow. this. The thing was, is he was applying it, in my opinion, to opportunities that warranted it. Right. But what ended up happening, everybody else saw the playbook and said, let's just apply that to everything. Yeah. I don't recommend get big, fast strategies for restaurants, for example. You know, (laughs) in some other traditional businesses. I sure don't recommend it for somebody who wants to be running their own business 100 years, within their family or their employee base, 100 years from now. Yeah. That is highly unlikely. Yeah, Uh, whether you go to a co-op or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's not going to happen. So. So anyway so that that's um, you know, I just think it's important to say. Now, that said, I do believe evergreen companies, because of their long time horizons, because of the resiliency they design in themselves, the strength of culture, yeah, it's a little bit like the tortoise and the hare. You might have somebody take off and look like they're just rocketing ahead of you. Oh yeah. But man, if you really believe in that purpose and you've brought your people together and you're profitable and growing from it, and you're willing to take a long time horizon, you'll crush them. Oh yeah. You'll beat them. Yeah. But it may be in a 10, 20, 30 year time frame. Totally. It's not gonna be in four or five.
0: Hello, Meerkats. I am interrupting this conversation to provide you a nice exclusive podcast listener discount to Meerkat.com. If you enter the code DavePodcast20 at checkout, you will receive 20% off site-wide onmir.com that's m-i-i-r.com uh and we rarely rarely discount but we believe so much in you listening to our content and hopefully providing um you some value about how we operate our company and the people that we engage with uh and the partners that we have that we would love to support you and to give you uh, additional value by giving you a site-wide discount so again if you use the code dave podcast 20 at checkout you will receive 20 percent off now back to our conversation <music> So how do you so so you start tugboat? What was the impetus to, to kind of changing that? Because that that wait, what you are saying is not what happened at Net Netscape. Netscape, yeah, I was about to say Netsuite, but it's not yeah. Netsuite. Yeah. Um, so with
1: Netscape, I mean, because Netscape was quick, fast, so we had to meet Microsoft. Yeah, so I, did, I guess the thumbnail of this would be went did good technology. Yeah, sixty million dollars on nineteen slides to go build a wireless messaging company. Back then, that was a big deal. Yeah. And then... You're the original slide deck guy. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah I, I, <laughs> by 99, we were trying to take companies public with like $2 million of revenue, you know, for a billion dollars. And some people were... Yeah, five ...accepting slides. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, um, but it was a big idea. And I jumped over behind me and I would benchmarked And so people got excited about that. It got singular, which is... Uh, it was the on Mobitech network before, like, behind the idea. And then we had one other person running on the Mobitech network, and that was BlackBerry Rim. Mm, yep. It was a big strategic partnership. So the pieces were starting to come together. Yeah. And so we raised the capital, and then I hired a CEO who was a friend of mine um, uh, to replace me and became executive chairman, and ended up working in the company for another two and a half years as, like, a lead salesman, worked on strategy and things like that. And then ended up spinning out of there. That company a couple years later was sold to Motorola for about a half a billion dollars, and so and that was one of the top ten tech exits at, at, up to that period of yeah. time. Now again, five hundred million today is like failure by venture. Yeah, yeah, right? like, yeah. Really, yeah. five hundred million. Yeah. What a terrible situation, yeah. right? You know, not worth hundred billion and yeah. nothing, right? Yeah, it's amazing how things have changed. But that kind of gets to the point I'm going to get to in a second. So left good, and then. I decided I didn't want to do another startup. John Dor was very interested in have me do another one. And I had a three year old and a one year old and a wife who hadn't seen me for three years. And frankly I hadn't seen me much at Kleiner Perkins either. So she's kind of like, Look, you know, where's your commitment? Is it with us or them? So I said, mm. I, I can't do another startup. And I was tired too. I have yeah. been working hard for about six years. And so um, the guys at T P G, uh, Dave Bonderman, Jim Coulter, you know, great buyout firm, had started a venture capital fund. And it was going, Okay, not great and so yeah. I said, Could you come and just take a look at it and give us your point of view on it? So I looked at it and I said I'm not sure what you got here, right? Yeah. I'm like, well, would you be willing to come in and, and kind of help see what we could do? And 2003, there wasn't a lot of other things going on, so I did. And I yep. really liked them, and I kind of got to know the, the guys in the venture group. And then my first investment in that was a company called Success Factors. I don't know if you remember this, but we bought. 25% of the company for $4 million. It had been turned down by 32 venture capital funds. It was a failed company that had been restarted under the stewardship of Dave Strom at Greylock, who recruited a guy named Wallace Doggart, who's an incredible human being, to run this thing. And I showed up just in time to basically save the company from going out of business because I loved the idea. It was yeah, objectives yeah. and key results, which yeah. John Dor wrote about in his recent book. That's what they were doing. That's what, yeah. Performance reviews and objective and key results. So yep. I got it because John had trained me in that. And he and Andy Grove. That's it. So it was kind of wired. Anyway, so that ended up being a huge success. We sold it to we sold to SAVI, I'd left the board by then uh, for three point six billion dollars. So it was a huge outcome. Wow. And you know, and TPG owned a very large stake. So it, it made that venture fund very successful. But for me, what I would learned, um, the next investment that I was kind of interested in doing was um, um, LinkedIn. So Reed uh, Hoffman was a yep. friend of mine. I knew him through Chris Alden, and Reed was looking at that time to raise two to four million dollars at like an eight million dollar pre-money valuation. And so a guy named Alan Morgan and LinkedIn the- was an eight million pre. That's kind of what he was looking at <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, so as Alan Morgan. Um, was interested in doing it. Alan kind of said, Dave, we should just do this together. TBG, Mayfield, we should put in $2 million and work with. And he was very close to Reed. We both loved the guy. Yeah. So I brought Reed in informally because, it's part of the story I don't like to tell, TBG actually passed on success factors the first time I brought it to the partnership. After spending a couple of months of due diligence, they said no. Oh, well. And I had to push to get it done. And I was told by a couple of partners, you know, Dave, that's not the way it works here you're pushing too hard I'm like but back at Kleiner Perkins this would be all like green lights yeah, yeah. and you guys see all red lights I yeah, don't get yeah. it you know yeah. so anyway they let me do it which was good um, but so I wanted to kind of pre-wire LinkedIn and see how it went so we brought him in and my partners didn't like read kind of like, you know, who wants to introduce somebody to somebody else and introduce somebody to somebody else? I mean, what the heck's that going to be? And I'm like, I don't know. He's just really bright. There's something about this connectivity layer in the professional circles, which would replicate what's happening informally. So I just wanted to put the $2 million in it. And my partners were not interested. They just didn't want to do it. And I decided not even to formally bring it to the partnership. And so that cost us $4 billion. You know, and but what it did more importantly for me was it said, "Can like, maybe just you know these are great buyout guys. Yeah, maybe they're not great early venture guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the guy named Bill McGlashan uh, had arrived, and Bill was like, "Hey, look, we should move this up market, larger checks, minute-sized companies." So that's what Bill. That's where Bill took it. And he's okay. done that very successfully. So that left me a chance to do. So I started Tugboat Ventures coming out of that. And I'm like, you know what? I want to do a small fund, early stage. I want to do the success factors yeah, yeah. and the LinkedIn's and some of the things that I did back at Kleiner. I raised $50 million in 2006. How many slides? <clears throat> 18. 18. So I, I'm kind of in that high teens. Yeah. Yeah. Like my oh, slide yeah. yeah, count. Yeah, yeah. Keep short. nights. Nice. <laughs> I like that. I like that. And, you know, and it was interesting because, like, there was LPs in the community that were really excited to have a guy coming out of Kleiner Perkins that had been mentored by John Doerr that actually had led a venture group that had a couple successful investments. It's like, yeah, that, you know, that's kind of because uh, at that time nobody, at least as far as I heard from the LPs, had ever backed somebody who was a single GP, yeah, uh, starting from by himself, nobody else, you know, and they were willing to take some risk on me, and so I did that. And my vision was I want to go back to how venture capitalist practiced in the sixties and seventies because I'd seen a separation that had mm-hmm. happened a uh, writer between 97 when I joined Connor Perkins and 2000 when I left, the model had changed. Yeah. Uh, when I first got there, it was writing smaller checks, incubating ideas, giving a little bit more money as the company removed risks. It was a very methodical risk reduction process. It switched to that group, get big fast. Like, just good. well, I could give $25 million in this Yeah. It, it was just lots of capital happening really fast. And I thought, you know what, I think there's still room for the old model, you know, kind of a more curated, hands-on, yeah. and so, that's what I went to go implement, um, and so I raised one fund to do that, and then raised a second fund to do it a couple of years later, and then that first fund, uh, I didn't make. I made nine investments, all pre-product, pre-revenue, so very risky. Yeah, very yeah. engaged with the companies, and then we hit 2008 and the credit crisis, in 2009, and it's like it just all dried up, and so it wasn't a great time to have a very early stage portfolio. <laughs> so that was a challenging period. Yeah, and so that was great, and so that that. Um, uh, and so anyway, so then we did the second fund. And then we came up with the 2012. So wait, how did you go from the first to second of the first one? Did you go back to the same people or? Well, the first one, we didn't. I raised the second one before, uh, okay. in 2008, before things before, fell out. Okay, so, so September you got the money in. The it was before fund. that, yeah. Okay. It was in the spring. Yeah. And it was basically the LPs came to me and said, Look, let's just do another fund. This is going so well. Let's just do another one. They didn't anticipate the credit crisis and the crunch either. Right. So anyway, so I started investing the second fund in 09. So that actually fund will actually have a better trajectory, I believe. The yeah. first one's really been challenged ever since then credit crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was more interesting was in 2012 was kind of time to raise the third fund. And some of my LPs very honestly were like, you know Dave, we don't know if this strategy of yours works anymore. I mean this kind of early stage pre-product, highly concentrated, maybe that worked in Kleiner in the 60s or 70s but it, the model seems to be today is people do this stage, they do 100 investments. They just yeah. write lots of little checks. Yeah. And historically that never worked before because they get washed out later in future rounds. But if you head into a period from 09 to 2000 19 which generally been up and to the right yeah that actually strategy works really well so right. that wasn't my strategy. yeah I really liked the more close. Orient- so anyway what happened was is I didn't feel I had enough support. I could raise the fund but I wanted like full support So yeah. that caused me to be reflective and say hmm what do I really want to do here And then the maybe you remember the story of Jessica Heron yeah so that is that merged for me at that time but to go back on that Jessica was somebody that we backed at Kleiner Perkins. I found her at a business school competition at Stanford Business School. I really was impressed with her. I asked her to drop out of the competition. I thought she was a second year. I learned later she was a first year. So the vice dean called me and said, is this going to become a habit of yours, of stealing students out of our first year program? i like, oh, that's bad. Yeah. Like, well, <laughs> I said, that's really bad. That's, bad. that's bad. That's bad form. It won't happen again. I'm sorry. Like, sorry. sorry. Yeah. But this one we're pregnant on. So we're yeah, going to go yeah, for yeah, it. Yeah, uh, yeah, so it's using a wedding registry, and you know we ended up uh, putting capital in the firm. We had raised another 25 million very quickly. We asked Martha Stewart to come on the board of directors. We had a relationship with her, she did. We hired a rock star CEO. Um, and we went to go kind of scale that, get big fast, and then we hit basically a dot com crash before we could get it public. Mm. And so that company was sold and was sold again. And then Jessica, who's the founder of the company, stayed with it for each other's acquisitions, and she was still trying to bring her vision to life of being of service to women who are having, getting married to their wedding registries. Yeah. and. It just she couldn't get the people around her aligned around that. And so she was very purpose driven and other people being much more transactional driven. Yeah. Again, sorry for her to tell not me, but she ended up leaving and took some time off, had two young girls, and then she came to me in two thousand six. I'm literally starting Tugboat raising money for Tugboat Ventures and she's like, I want to start another firm. I liked you and your partners at Kleiner Perkins. I hate your model. (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, what? I mean, it's a little offensive, right? Like, what? Come on. He yeah. said, to him, well, I'm glad you like this. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, but you know, guess what? I'm raising Togo Ventures. And it's going to be a really, really stage. It's the stage you're at. And, you know, it's going to be a very small portfolio. I can spend time with you. And I said, well, how's that sound? She goes, it sounds terrible. She said, because it's still under the model. You need to sell me something. You need to harvest me to make a return for your investors. I want to run this thing for the rest of my life. You know, and that's when she said the famous line I love, which is, you know, my exit strategy would be rolled out of my office on a gurney wow. with an oxygen intake on my, my lap. She goes, that's my exit strategy for this business mm-hmm. It's the rest of my life, right? Yeah, and yeah. I thought, that's pretty neat. And I said, and again, I've said this story before, but I said the foolish things of, that's cool, you're going to build a lifestyle business. <laughs> and she kind of... I didn't physically rip my face off. Yeah, yeah. Kind of her eyes did. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And she was insulted. She actually was insulted. She said, "Like you know, given what I've done, the experiences I've been through, uh, the respect you had for me, you know, years ago, I've learned so much more since then. I've got a better business plan, a better business model. I've got energy to go do this. And you think I'm building a lifestyle business? Because now I'm going to build a business. Someday it's going to do a billion in revenue. It's going to impact the lives of millions of women globally. It's going to make a difference in the world. That's what I'm going to do. And that's when I said, Ah, I gotcha." You can't build that business today without raising venture capital. I mean, to build a global consumer brand at the mm-hmm. scale you're talking about, it's going to take a quarter billion dollars. I mean, we just learned that at Kleiner Perkins. Yeah. And again, it's like, well, you're talking to like the Jedi master, and she's yeah. like, but Dave, that's because you're thinking about a four to five year time frame. This is mm-hmm. the point of what you know, you're know yeah. you talking about. If I build the brand authentically and I give it time and let it do through word of mouth and let my business scale... I can literally build that brand over a 25-year period to be a national brand yeah. and to be a billion-dollar company. I don't need the outside capital. It's I just have a different time horizon, which I'm thinking about. I have a different way of thinking about expanding my brand. And I was like, oh, my God, you're, you, you've are you really thought this thing through. And so the last question was, you know, what do you want for me? And she said, well, I'd love to have a little bit of money to help get this off the ground. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I can't do that. I can't lend you money. She's like, <laughs> Why would you lend me money? And I said, well, because you're never exiting or being – Sold or taken public, yeah. So, I'm never going to get my money. Yeah, back what's your return? So, I guess it's a loan, yeah. she's like She's like, Oh gosh, she, she gets, there's a concept called dividends, yeah. You know, public <laughs> companies do them, private yeah. companies can do them too, yeah. You know, yeah. And so what we, we do is as I build the business and start generating excess cash, I'll just dividend some of the excess cash out to you, and I'd hope to give you a return that'd be a return that'd be much more attractive than you'd find in the public markets. And at that point, like you know, let's just do this. And yeah, so yeah, I right. wrote her a small check and then uh, Doug McKinsey and Kevin Compton, those two partners that I talked to yeah. earlier about, it, Kleiner Perkins, uh, a lot more resource than me. They kind of rounded out a $2 million financing. And she got the profitability on $1.6 $1 million, profitable $1. 6 ever since. She's public announces, hundreds of millions in revenue. Um, she's kind of on her path of the vision she has for herself. So anyway, what happened to me back 2012, yeah. so I went and saw her and I'm like, you know, over the last six years, you've had about a hundred million in revenue at that point. I'm like. In six years too, right? Yeah, yeah. What are you doing? But I'm in 25 years. Exactly. Yeah. So what are you doing? And she kind of talked to me about it. I'm like, you know, Jessica, are there other people thinking about the world the way you're thinking about it? She goes, if you'd asked me that question in 2006, I would have said, no, I don't know anybody. But today I could probably point you to two. Yeah. And so that was the <laughs> beginning of my research. And so I kind of went on the road and I just kept asking people in my network, whether it be, again, from Cal or Stanford or Klein or all TPG yeah. networks, who do you know that you admire that's going to build a meaningful company over time you know, purpose-driven, treat their people well, but for some reason they just will not raise venture capital and private equity. And that was really, that was really after the last thing was ambition, but they didn't want to go on that path and that model. Yeah. And that's what kind of led me to meeting Jim Goodnight at the SAS Institute, that led me to meeting Matt Harmon at Balsam Hill, yeah. and just meeting Don McCaskill at Smugman, she's great, great right. people. And right. that was kind of the initiation of the idea of creating Tuggood Institute. Which is me after meeting with about forty fifty, and said, "Look, why don't we come up to Sun Valley and spend a couple of days together, talk about what it's like to build a company?" I was using the term evergreen, but I didn't have the evergreen seven Bs yet. Yeah, yeah. And let's just talk about what it's like to build a business this way, to raise a family when you're building a business like this. You know, how do you take care of yourself? You know, yeah. we'll do that in the mornings, afternoons. We'll go out and hike and bike and do fun things. With the sun. And then night, let's just have some fun. Yeah, you know, have some whiskey, have some drinks, play yeah. a little poker. You know, <laughs> hang out, do some bowling in the basement of a yeah. resort. And and so we did that. And it was it just it's been great ever since. it great changed my life. Yeah. yeah, it was like this is what I'm gonna do. That's so great.
0: Yeah, and it's and it it's, so far it's working. I mean, the the membership base is now up to how many?
1: 125. 125. Yeah. Um, it, and, and it's neat. It's neat. Just to highlight that, um, 75% are founders. 25% are multi-generational evergreens. And so either they're owned by a family over many generations, yeah. or an employee base over many generations. Right. Right. And there's some commonality in that which is pretty neat, um, 25 different industries. The smallest is about five million in revenue, which is our minimum criteria. The largest is about eight billion. So you have a whole span of sizes, industries. Um, and it's that mixing, which in some ways is creates all this serendipity. You know, People who are smaller have the chance to meet with people who have actually been through those things before. Yeah. But vice versa, some of those larger, more established companies meet some incredible founders. I mean, yeah. just ideas and creativity and energy. And so, I don't know, it's just, you've seen it. It's such know? a fun group. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And yeah. it's, it's, um, I mean, the, I would say the relationships have been incredible that have come out of, out of the group and uh, people who have come and spoke and become friends of mine that are um, just create like, you know, Roar Denver. Who's awesome. I mean, just the guy's probably, I mean, things we can't even imagine, but um, I mean, just his perspective on the world and, you should you should say for your, your audience who Rourke is. So Rourke is a command uh, Navy SEAL. So he's not just a Navy SEAL. Former Navy SEAL he's a Navy SEAL commander. So he's the guy that trains all the Navy SEALs to become the Navy SEALs. And he's done missions all over the world. Some probably some crazy stuff. He knows uh, we had a great activity where he did some um, choke you some, out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we did some choking yeah. out, which was crazy. Um, <laughs> Some breaking lead some, lead duct tape, some duct tape, duct tape, bonds, break out some.
1: of a trunk of a car. Yeah, the, tr- yeah, the, tr- uh, the trunk
0: of the car. What was the other The zip ties. You <laughs> the, know, zip with ties? the zip ties. zip yeah. tied together with the shoelaces. That was a good one. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, uh, a- oh yeah, you
1: saw them with your shoelaces. Yeah, shoelaces. yeah, yeah, yeah that the the fresh all fresh kinds of neat yeah, tricks. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but
0: he goes, was- but in the U.S. we have uh, zip ties with wire in the middle, so you can't do that. So yeah, <laughs> I yeah, forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I was like, oh, smart. Yeah, smart. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the people that we've come across from the Tugboat Institute are just incredible, incredible people. So I have to personally thank you for oh, starting this. It's great um, great Part um, of Because when the team, I can't remember who reached out to me, but somebody reached out to me. And I remember, like, kind of being blown away, looking at the website and going, wait, this exists? Because um, I come from a family business, and you, you meet other family businesses around, you know, of... there's a very successful Yeah, a very business. successful family business yeah. um, that my grandfather started, and that long-term growth, it, you just didn't see, you know, you start with, like, the Warehouser family and some of these industries where, where it North took a long North. time to get yeah. there, and, um, and then in the face of it, what's on headlines and what you see in business school is that there's these people raising millions of dollars every single year, and... It doesn't matter if you're profitable or what you do to your people. And, and there was a struggle between me as, as Mir was growing of, we needed some additional capital. Um, I didn't want to go private equity or VC. I wanted to do something long term. And right. um, it's funny because you talk about exit strategies. In all of my decks, when I, when I pitched to friends and family, I, they would, some would ask, what's your exit strategy? And I said, in the PPM, the private placement memorandum that you put out um, yeah. for investors said, exit strategy. There is no exit strategy. That's great. And I and I put it put it in writing to to let them know that you know there is there there could potentially be no exit strategy. However, on the dividend piece, this is the vision: is that as we continue to grow the brand, the right way in our view, um, that over time, as we're profitable and we have excess cash, we'll be able to write dividends um, and hopefully cover more than the investment down the road. Um, just be patient with us,
1: and and it might take a long time. Yeah, it might yeah, take us 10, 20 years. Who knows? And, and, and one thing: is it's 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 subtle but super important is that. Um, if you can reinvest your profits at a high rate of return, let's, yeah. let's pick on 15%, for yeah. example, most investors would like you to keep reinvesting in the business yep. and not dividing out, or maybe yeah. just, as we talk about, like a minimum dividend. Maybe yeah, cover the top taxes or whatever else. Yeah, That's exactly right. Yeah. Because if they get that cash back, and they look at, the, for example, the public markets. They're not getting 15% in the public no. markets. I mean, yeah. that, that, not on average. Uh, yeah it's so the best <laughs> thing to do, and you know, this is kind of how Warren Buffett thinks about like uh, all the subsidiaries, which is, look, if you can redeploy that at a high rates of return, keep it. Keep it. If you can't give it back to me, I'll find someplace else to deploy totally. it within a broader portfolio. Yeah. I think you should treat your investors the same way, which is, look, if I can reinvest at high rates, I hope I have your permission and support to keep reinvest, which you will. Yep. And yep. then when I don't, I'll send that excess cash back to you, and you can deploy it in other places. Yeah. That's that, awesome.
0: When we had that conversation, it might have been about a year ago. I mean, that completely unlocked a huge struggle for me, where you know investors are saying, "Hey, what is a long term vision for return on investment? You know, it's it's not a loan; it's an actual investment of, of right. equity. And how do we how do we balance that with you know? And, and we probably, if not week, if not daily, weekly, we have PE and V C money reaching out of hey we want to talk to you hey we want to talk to you hey we, want to talk, to you. Hey, we talk to you and for us we we're a very small brand but we're very visible mm-hmm. we're at starbucks we're in patagonia we're in a lot of great brand partnerships and so people are always pinging us and i'm always like hey thanks but no thanks you know and and I have to, it's funny because it's almost like they're very offended of like, because money is so easy right now that every CPG company is like, oh yeah, yeah, we'll bring in the money, we'll bring in the money. I'm like, hey, no, I'm, I'm okay. I'm like, Thank you. I'm good. And they're like, what do you mean? What's like, your price? Yeah, what's like, your price? I'm like, I don't have a price. There isn't a price. Yeah, I thought,
1: <laughs> there isn't one. The price is my purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you just yeah. can't get aligned with that totally. long term.
0: So. And it's interesting because people who come, who've come and joined Mir at this, the last three years, um, you know, as you grow, you have to attract really great talent mm-hmm. and you can tell the people that will join and, and not join because they'll say... Well, what you know, if somebody offered you a ton of money, would you sell it tomorrow? And I said no. And they're like, why not? And I'm like, I would if I had all the money in the world, I would be doing exactly what I'm doing now. See, that's awesome. And they're like, I love that I'm in,
1: or or they're like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. I'm that's out. You well, know, like I don't to be a part of this. Yeah, that. Um, yeah, that. I mean, that's the perfect. Thing. Yeah. I mean, if you can say that, which is, if I had all the money in the world, I'd still do what I'm doing
0: today. Yeah, you're doing what we should be doing. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's where we've landed. So I I, I have to say I'm, I'm really appreciative for the guidance of just hey look at look at the dividends, look at the long term, look at the long term growth of t- 10 15 years and what's fascinating is once you stop focusing on the the quarter and you hear this from publicly traded CEOs they go once you stop focusing on the quarter and you start looking at the one, two, three, 2 the and the long term all of a sudden the performance in the short term improves also improves also incredible. you know it's um, it's like you know the, the sh- like what's right in front of
1: you distracts you versus when you when you kind of zoom out a little bit. That's exactly um, which is I don't know. And I think it's inspiring to employees too to know that you're investing in things that may take a few years to really bear fruit, mm-hmm. but they're part of that creation also versus this almost manic focus on what can we do in the next ninety a quarter's ninety days. Yeah. Don't forget that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and probably when you're having your conversation yep. about it, it's the middle of a quarter. So you have forty five days yeah, left. Yeah, like yeah. what are we gonna do to make the quarter? Yeah. You know, that's crazy. That's crazy. That's crazy yeah. in the context of, you know, a lifetime that yeah. you're hoping to build this business within, you know. Totally. you, know, you got you gotta decide what you want. And one of the I think that's interesting too is is that I think there will be some people who go the venture back route mm-hmm. and hopefully have success, generate some wealth for themselves. I hope they would seriously consider the next firm going the Evergreen route. Yeah. You know, and I think there's other people who should just go evergreen route because that's what they should be doing from day one. Totally. You know, and a, and a couple of things I'd shared I think are really important is and if you're going the Evergreen route, you know this idea that Clayton Christensen shared with me, the Harvard Business Professor, which is our society's got this flip upside down. We are impatient for growth, but I'm impatient for growth, but patient for profits. Yeah. It should be the exact opposite: be impatient for profits and patient for growth. Because yeah. if you can move yourself to profitability early and then grow from your profitability, you'll be around forever. Yeah, right? you'll be wrong. No, nobody can take your business away from yeah, you. Yeah, nobody. You know your customers can't, so don't screw that. Yeah. Out. <laughs> yeah, you know I guess your employees could because yeah. they all left you. But like if you keep your employees and your customers working well with you and do it for profitability, this is your—you have the gift of doing this forever. And yeah. if you grow, I mean, the resources you'll generate in that business will let you do all kinds of things. I mean, I love the story of, like, uh, Andy Taylor takes over the business, $68 million in revenue from his dad, Jack. Yep. And he grows out to about $25 billion in revenue over his leadership career, mostly as CEO, partly as executive chairman. So, you know, they're having an issue with funding of the, the Arch in St. Louis. He just pulls out a checkbook and says, two things. I, I, this is shortcutting it, but basically here's the check yeah. to get this right. You know, by the way, please fix the governance on the board. I mean, how did you guys get yourself in this position? You know, and they fix the governance. They have the check. They finish it. This is a beautiful yeah. monument now in St. Louis. You know, something's been around forever but was falling in disrepair. I mean, to be able to do that, you know, and then be able to pay the people as well as he pays the people, be able to, like, just, I mean, he couldn't have done that if he had sold the company in year five of his tenure yeah. and got a couple hundred million dollars. Yeah, you know, I mean, be the same. It, it just wouldn't be the same. Yeah,
0: when you start to, like, zoom out and look at that, that wealth generation over over periods of time, like you talked about,
1: 15% over 20 years is it's is incredible. It's, it's phenomenal. And yeah. so, you know, it's important to say this too because I don't think we said it too. Is if somebody builds a great evergreen company and generates a lot of wealth in doing so, I mean, we should celebrate that. Oh, yeah. Because the values in which they're building that company under are such noble, important values. Yeah. I mean, great customer experiences, great employee experiences, you know, longevity, resilience, staying in your communities and supporting communities. I mean, that's all kind of the essence of being Evergreen. Yeah. And so, we're not saying these should be nonprofits. yeah. yeah we're totally. just simply <laughs> saying, that should, but that shouldn't be your purpose. That should be the byproduct of doing that Absolutely. Purpose as well, right? Absolutely, so. yeah, it becomes, it becomes,
0: because you believe in it and you're doing it so much that it just exudes out of your company. Right, exactly, yeah, so. totally. So you strike me as somebody, you've had an incredible trajectory, career. You've moved into this, this tugboat idea what are what are, I'm curious what are some of the habits that you Dave as an individual do on the daily or weekly basis because it seems like from an early age all the way to 24 of you know playing with the lasers right to where you are now if, I mean you've, you've, you've touched um, the gamut of some really incredible successful people and people have entrusted you with their money are, are there things that you can identify that you know I you know I do X or I do Y and, and that is something that
1: matters to me and it's helped me in my success uh well, I think you go through different phases of your life. Mm-hmm. Like, there's the kind of what I call the pre wife, pre kid phase. Yeah, yeah. And my general view is, is that I'm, I'm fully available. I mean, keeping pace with John Doerr for three years, I, I was married uh, halfway through that. And John really liked my wife, and I really liked him. That was good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, because, you know, he, he made tremendous claims on my time. But that was fine. I mean, yeah. it was a very special time and moment. But after having kids, I got out of sorts, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, through the period with good technology, I, I didn't spend enough time with my kids or my family. And then, if i did another startup, which I could have chose to do, Kleiner would have backed me to do it maybe five years more, if not. So maybe yeah. my son would be eight years old before I'd have time to spend with him. And so, one of the blessings of the good to TPG transition was is I was able to reinvest in my family, and I think that was really important. You know, and yeah. I, I, I don't, I mean. I, I don't regret not doing another startup so when I could have the experience at TPG and with the family. And so I, th- I think over time, it's kind of seasons of your life. But, yeah. um, you know, I think the toughest of all is when you've got young kids, and you're trying to build something special. Yeah. I mean, it, that's just, I call it compression because mm-hmm. you can't win. I mean, and maybe this is a habit, but just don't have expectations of yourself to be a perfect husband, a perfect father. A perfect businessman doing all of those things, and you know, or a mother, yeah. you know, a, a wife, and a yeah. CEO. I mean, yeah. on the other side, it, it's, it's it's not a reasonable expectation. You're going to kill yourself. Yeah. So you have to kind of let things give, and you have to find little tricks and stuff. So like some of the tricks I learned when I was really busy was like, invest in your vacations. When you go on vacation, turn the phone off. Yeah. Really try to train your staff and team to like. At least one vacation a year, I'm not online at all. I'm going to be fully present with my family, you know, in that oh, yes. experience. Yeah. Very few people do that today. Everybody's kind of still tied in on vacations. And I think they're really losing something. Because for kids, the strongest memory they're going to have of their childhood, which is the memories you have, is your vacations. Mm-hmm. And if what you remember is dad being off, and mom being like, oh, she was on her cell phone, she was on a phone call, she walked down the beach, she disappeared for two hours. I guess there was some important meeting that had to be at. They know that. Versus really. like, oh my gosh, for seven days, we yeah. just played. yeah Dad was, you know, from the time he woke up to the time he went to sleep, was right there with me. So that's a really important one. Another one was holiday traditions, you know, establishing those and being repetitive with those with kids. I think another one, I guess I'm focusing on the kid angle, yeah. is food traditions, right? It's mm-hmm. like cooking with your kids on Sundays, you know, having certain recipes that like they just fall in love with and it becomes the food that they'll someday cook for their kids. And yeah, so yeah. what I learned, this was through a mentor I had named David Surrender, was this those those holidays, those uh, vacations, those food traditions, mm-hmm. super important. And then layering that for yourself, your time to exercise. Yeah. So cool. I get up very early in the morning, and part of that, so I can read first thing when I wake up, and then exercise, even half an hour, forty five minutes. Yeah. You know, before seven thirty in the morning, so I'm already kind of through reading and exercise almost every single day. I try to get out in the outdoors on the weekends. That's what I love Sun Valley. Yeah. I mean, hiking a lot. You know, biking a lot. I mean, that is good for you. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I. I I really love about being up here is like I used to like to bike a lot around the Bay Area and I was in Menlo Park and I actually ride out Sand Hill Road go out over into the hills, but you know I had a couple of friends get killed, Yeah. and so I started riding earlier in the morning. I tried to finish earlier. I was really aware of the cars and traffic. That's not an immersive experience, right? <laughs> get on a mountain bike and head out and just I mean within yeah, a couple of miles you feel like you're you're in wilderness. It's absolutely.
0: Amazing. That I mean those are I would I would exclaim. Both, you know, both of those, especially on the kids and the vacation. I was recently in Hawaii, and typically it's unplugged in, and, and part of it was have to at a certain stage of the business. But and, and I'm just I'm very thankful at a spot now where I can step away for a week or two and, and and actually be present. And it's and the kid, your kids, just they notice they every, they, they notice, you know, know like it. when you're on your phone, whether it's Instagram or whatever else. They're they are
1: watching you like a hawk. And the problem, too, is if you have, a, let's say, just even a tough phone call, not even a terrible, just a tough phone call, your mind's processing that for hours Absolutely. afterwards, and the kids sense it. Totally,
0: totally. So I, so my um, my assistant actually, like, we, we had a conversation about it, turning off the phone, email for an entire week, uh, and why it was, I mean, I hadn't done that in years. It was, it was, It was, I would echo that and exclamation point that. And don't you
1: recharge at a level you don't otherwise? Oh, yeah, I, I came mean, back,
0: yeah. and I'm like, we're going to go, and it's, I mean, yeah, 100%. Awesome so th- those are great those are great uh, those are tra- great those tips t- and I t- think t- the t- word you used was a, a incredible compression because I yeah. certainly feel I have a, a six month old and a three month old and I'm trying to you know and, and um, you know my wife um, we lost a family member recently with her side of the family and so it's, it's been this just compression of like trying to be the perfect dad the perfect husband the perfect business leader and I'm definitely not and so I think and I feel that too Where forgive it's, yourself for yeah, that right? thank you be I, you okay I, with that yeah, yeah. Yeah. you know and you, just, you can't, can't do all those things at the same time Totally. Okay. Um, but I will say, as an evergreen company and one that aspires to do that, we have this, I would call it this kind of beautiful blend of, of work and life. And, and people, when they're interviewing me or I'm on um, you know, speaking or whatever else it is, people say, well, well, how do you achieve work-life balance? And I say, first of all, I'm horrible at work-life balance because my work is part of my life. Right. And my family, my wife and I work together and our kids are involved. They're here this weekend at our offsite. And we, we bring them with us all over the place. Um, and its I think that would be very hard or it would be looked... At differently, if you are backed by a private equity or VC, and again, it's that route is fine for certain organizations. But I would encourage others that if you want to really bring your family into your business, that an Evergreen way is a way that you can do that. And, and those who appreciate
1: our board appreciates when the family is together. I think it's awesome. And the other thing too is this is very subtle, but if if building the company and say the fifteen percent growth rate for thirty years, now it's probably a higher growth rate when you're smaller. I know yep. you're much higher than yep. that, but over time you'll kind of feather into that that Creates a lot of space for people, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you're a company trying to grow at 100% a year, year after year. Yeah, you're breaking people. Oh, yeah, you're breaking their families, you're breaking them emotionally. Yep. I mean, for short periods, you can do it, but like yep. that's one of the things I think is kind of flawed in the get big fast model is that. Sustaining these rates of growth is a tremendous stress on us. And, yeah, you know, look at all the people in the Bay Area. Unfortunately, they have psychological issues, depression yeah. issues. Mm-hmm. Kids have issues of feeling tremendous pressure, disconnecting from their families. It's like, is it really worth all of it? Totally. I mean, again, if you're willing to spread out the time horizon, yeah. build a profitable company, scale it at a reasonable pace, it opens up. A life experience that could be much more rewarding for you. Yeah. But you, you ain't going to get rich overnight. No. you got to give that up. Yeah, you have to give it Let up. Let that go.
0: Yeah. And so, it's tough because cause the media celebrates the Instagrams and the whatever overnights and the big valuations, yeah, the big financings. And totally. Who, who,
1: who'd you get? Yeah, Sequoia, yeah, yeah. yeah. mean, Greylock. Wow, what a <sighs> win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then they get all this money and then are like, hmm, what do I do now? What I do I do? hope it's, my kids will talk to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, again, Thank you so much You're for welcome. your leadership in this evergreen movement, and just for helping steward all these people and kind of giving us a, a landing pad
1: to come together. That's awesome. And if, and if people are interested in learning more about it, if it's okay, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Like, how do people? So people who are listening in, and how so do they become part of this? There's probably two ways. One is you know, go to our website, tugbootinstitute.com, and there's a lot of materials on it, including how you can join as a member and see what the qualifications are. And the other is is that we have a thing called the Evergreen Journal, uh, which is a weekly email newsletter, and it's ideas and best practices. Of evergreen CEOs and leaders, yeah. and so, and I think people enjoy getting those every week. Some are videos, some are written content, but we'd encourage people to sign up for that, and that's another way to kind of just get into the spirit of this. Yeah, you know? and then uh, we would hope is that uh, over time there's just greater awareness around this. Yeah, you know? and I love to hear that more companies are being started coming out of college and high school and business school. You know. Um, and others, you know, it could be law school. You know, an average model. Yeah. Now, I'll, I'll leave one last thing. Yeah, we have more CEOs in our community who never went to college than you could imagine. You, I, sh- you shared this number with us last summit, and we were blown away by it. Yeah, it's you know I, I can't remember what the status is exactly, yeah. but um, and those that, that's truly remarkable. So you don't need a college degree to build a great company. We can all admire, you know. Yeah. And so if you do go to college, that's great. If totally. you do go to, that's great. college, yeah. don't don't create that as a condition of like doing something that, you know, hopefully like you aligns your passion with yep. what your business does and what your family represents. Right. It's just Absolutely. awesome. Absolutely. And the other thing, I think it's just a funny little stat. And I'm sorry, I'll close it with this. Yeah. is like, the number of people who had newspaper routes when they were 12 or 13 years old, they are evergreen CEOs. Yeah. I know we don't have newspaper routes anymore, but yeah. I think those kids are probably doing something like they're on Minecraft. like oh, totally. yeah, building doing stuff and yeah. selling stuff. I yeah. don't know. Yeah, you know, yeah. So. the lemonade stand of then is whatever today <laughs> now. Something oh, online, right? Flipping stuff online or Craigslist <laughs> right. or whatever else. Right. And yeah,
0: that that spirit of just being in business at an yeah, early so, age is there. So I guess my point is, everybody's available
1: to everybody. Yeah, You, know, you don't have to have a degree. You don't totally. have to go to business school. Mm-hmm. You know, you just have to... You want to care about the people that you're building this company with. You want to find customer something you can do on behalf of these customers. They'll pay you enough money so you can make a profit yeah. on it and keep yeah. going the business. So anyway. yeah, well, yeah. I'd I f- certainly
0: say you are the right guy to be leading this charge with your experience and, and passion for for Evergreen. And um, again, just can't thank you enough for for what you've started here. Awesome. And I'm, I'm proud to be a part of it. And um, proud to have you part of yeah, it. Yeah, good, Awesome. Good. All right. About, well, yeah. Thanks for your insight. And um, we can find people at tugboatinstitute.com, Instagram. Facebook, LinkedIn, all the things. I think so. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, Evergreen Jern would be, I think, our uh, on Twitter, right? Yeah. And then uh, we're also on LinkedIn. Perfect. Um, and then again, the newsletter is a nice way yeah. to get.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So if you're listening, you want to be a part of it, check it out. The summit in Sun Valley is fantastic. So if you do qualify and you apply. We can't wait to have you here in Sun Valley because awesome. it was a great time. <laughs> yeah. We do have a great time. That's great. Perfect. Thanks. All right, well thank you. Good luck this yeah, way. thank you. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. We will see you on the next episode.